the street that wasn't there. The year is 1965. We are living in Armidale, New South Wales. We were a young family, married three years with a 14-month-old son, and just bought our first house. What a wonderful time of life. We had youth, a future, a sense of achievement, and now a home of our own. Well, a highly mortgaged microhouse in the least desirable part of town. Sadly, 246 Barney Street, West Armidale, was most definitely and literally on the wrong side of the railway track. It was the last house in a nice but short and elite cul-de-sac, very close to the town dump. We were elite because the post office refused to acknowledge our existence. With our home very much our castle, not only did we take exception to this, but found it increasingly annoying when having to chase up correspondence, bills and receipts that were eventually surrendered by the post office as address unknown. For those who ventured out to physically circumnavigate the route to 246 Barney, the reason was immediately clear. Although Barney was one of the major streets through town, it did a funny little right turn under the railway line and appeared to disappear into the comparative obscurity of a winding lane flanked by long grass and overgrown shrubs, with open paddocks beyond. It was certainly not an area for the faint-hearted. However, for those with the tenacity of spirit and adventure, the winding lane eventually turned into a street. It even had a signpost, faded, bent, rusted, and a couple of bullet holes in it, yes, but distinct enough to read Barney Street West. The real estate sales pitch to always buy the worst house in the best street fell foul on our ears as ours was indisputably the best house in the street because although there were three other houses in our cul-de-sac two had been burnt down one as a state of arson the other by vandals the third was in the process of being built but subject to the owner's bankruptcy had become a debtor's edifice so we were in all honesty the only true ratepayers that is we paid council taxes for which we enjoyed the benefits of water and electricity our home sweet home had been advertised as having spectacular views of the city golf course, which was true if you stood on a chair and looked out of the kitchen window. However, an omission had been made that within weeks on the other side of the street was a vacant block with equally spectacular views of the city dump. A number of trespassers will be prosecuted. Signs soon adorned the entire block along with private property, keep out, and even dangerous, poisonous substances. But that did not deter the people over the road. They arrived shortly after we moved in, with their house on the back of a lorry. That is the first part of the house, at that time no more than a shed. It was erected within minutes, no foundations or stabilizers, and obviously a work in progress. A week later, Shed 2 was joined to Shed 1, with loose planks of wood providing a rough awning. It was at this point the family moved in. It's a little difficult to name or number them as they varied from week to week, as did the house renovations, but briefly we could account for the following. Father figure, aged somewhere between 30 and 60, tall, 
lanky, scraggy, long hair, unwashed, unshaved, speech unintelligible. Mother figure, aged somewhere between 30 and 60, tall, lanky, scraggy, long hair, unwashed, speech unintelligible. Children were variable in number, gender and ages, but on the whole were scraggy with long hair. Well, you get the picture. Every so often, the father figure would drive his lorry up with another garage-type structure on board, which would be reassembled by the people over the road during the following week. Gradually, the buildings, awnings and sections were connected into a veritable citadel of immense proportions, expanding over the entire block. And updates became more sophisticated and high-tech. There was great excitement and enthusiasm from all on site when a toilet pedestal arrived, leaving husband and I to wonder what had been used before its installation. Indeed, we had reason to question the installation itself, as no pipes had been laid in preparation, simply the digging of a very large hole. The same could be said when the bath arrived a week or two later, although the visible foamy water puddles outside the house indicated when it was bath night. The people over the road were noisy and either had a good many friends or were procreating at an alarming rate, for as the house grew, so did their number. Happily, they gave us no grief and indeed totally ignored us, even when we sat on our porch enjoying the sunset and the little dramas that occurred on a nightly basis. The occupants were rarely seen by day, and if so, were accompanied by two hefty wheelers. Some weekends were quiet, while others were nights of great revelry and partying. By now we had also seen the greyhounds, which had been kenneled in one of the sheds, and had encouraged the theory that the celebrations were commiserate with a successful day at the track. Back then the New South Wales Police Force was not known for their dedication to duty, and although we timidly attempted to encourage patrols to come and witness some of the raucous revelries, we didn't push it too much. It was well known that many of the police were enthusiastic members of the Greyhound Syndicate. Not only that, but they were, for the most part, overly obese and probably incapable of doing much more than shout out, Police! Stop! Or I'll fire! And then do so randomly and, thankfully, inaccurately. The underbelly of Armidale, New South Wales, was a farce rather than a force to be reckoned with. By now, our own particular home among the gum trees was indeed just that. Veranda out the front, veranda out the back with two old rocking chairs. Compact and boringly predictable, with all utilities connected to all the regulation pipes. One night, even more people arrived to join the people over the road, maybe due to a particularly good win or even a housewarming for a new attachment. Kegs of beer were unpacked and consumed, laughter increased, the noise intensified, and fights began. Husband and I locked the doors, put the baby to bed, and sat behind our closed windows and watched the epic through the net curtains. After about an hour, the general disturbance became more specific, and screams and yells became dominant. With alarm, we saw a small flame flicker inside the main building. It grew. The people came out to watch. The flames grew bigger. Within minutes, the entire premises were an inferno, with the inhabitants all scrambling to get out. 
Children were scooped up, dogs let loose, and the entire gang of the people over the road got into their motorbikes, cars, trucks, lorries, and drove away. We had no telephone and were still just a tad nervous and didn't want to be seen, so we simply watched as the flames gradually reduced to embers, leaving little more than a burnt enamel bath and toilet pedestal sitting in the midst of the rubble. The house was gone. We waited for fire, ambulance, police, but none came. In the meantime, once more, we were the only residents in Barney Street West. The next day, with the paddock still smoking, we drove into town and informed the local council. Finally, with much grumbling, they came to inspect. From conversations carrying across the road, I heard them deem the building to have been illegally constructed. A few days later, a team arrived and began to demolish the burnt-out remains. That's when they found the body. We were asked to go to the police station to assist them in their investigations, but insisted that, like Sergeant Hans Schultz of Hogan's Heroes fame, we know nothing. However, we did emphasise there had been a lot of drinking, and maybe the man had been asleep when the fire broke out. No one would have been in a sober enough state to do a head count. A few days passed with much speculation on our part and apparent complete disinterest on the part of the police. It turned out that although we didn't have a police record, most of the people over the road did, so we were soon dismissed and forgotten. Sometime later it was reported in the local paper that the coroner's inquest had brought in a verdict of accidental death. Hmm. The strange thing was, nobody could say where the death had occurred, which is not surprising really. When you consider the house was unregistered, so had no deeds, was situated on council property in a street that didn't exist. Oh, wait a moment, sorry. Footnote. Having a husband, and indeed most of our friends, with a doctorate degree in science, it was, and still is, unlikely, I believe, in the supernatural. And I don't. After all, where is the empirical evidence? There was none. But for many weeks after the fire, we would often see a race-like figure walking, or maybe searching, through the rubble at night. With the aid of only a small torch and moonlight, he did look quite ghostly, and in my occasional flights of fantasy, I likened him to possibly be the man who had died there. But, <laughs> impossible, yes, and, and if so, what was he looking for? On a particularly bright day, when I had been buoyed by a glass of red wine, I went over and began to rummage around in the area to which my ghostly figure always seemed to be attracted. Of course grass had grown over all the charred stubble, but I did see something rather odd and scary in the ruins. I poked around with a long stick until it came properly into view. It was a full set of porcelain dentures, yes, artificial teeth. And in case you're wondering, I left them there. That's all I had to say. Thank you. You have been listening to The Street That Wasn't There, written and read 
by Brianda Cross. Please go to our website, crossfiction.com, for more information about our stories. And if you're in a good mood, it would be lovely if you went to iTunes and gave us a tick of approval. Thank you. Thank you.